Shabbat Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion of Lamb Ministries. Welcome to our Shabbat uh, study. Uh, we are at uh, Shabbat Vayishlach, and we are in the book of 30, or excuse me, the chapter 32 of Genesis, and we're continuing the story about Jacob and what happens with him. In the previous uh, Shabbat portion, we had Jacob uh, working for Laban for 20 years. And, um, and then he's now getting ready to depart, and that's where chapter 32 takes up. But before I get into chapter 32, because last night, last Shabbat, I wasn't able to bring a lot of this out, I want to just set the stage as an introduction to this week's portion by mentioning some of the things that was in the last week's portion. And looking back into chapter 31, uh, and beginning there at uh, verse 38, it says, Then Jacob became angry, contended with Laban. And Jacob answered and said to Laban, What is my transgression, my sin, that you have hotly pursued me? Uh, though you have felt though all my goods, what have you found that is uh, of your household goods? See to it here that my aunt, my kinsmen and, my, and your kinsmen, that they may decide between us. These twenty years... I have been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten the rams of your flock. That which was torn of beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. You required it of my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. And that's part of the argument, because what has transpired is that Jacob finally came to the conclusion of the 20 years, and so he loaded up his wives and all of his children and his flocks, and he set it up so that he could be separate from Laban, and he took off. And he started to head back to the land again. Now Laban, when he discovered that, that Jacob had left with his um, daughters and uh, with his grandchildren, he got very upset, and so he loaded up to go chase him down. Well, he caught up with him, and... Um, on this fourth day that he had journeyed away from him. And he confronted Jacob by saying, you stole my uh, household idols. And in truth of fact, Rachel had stolen the idols. And she had placed them in her camel saddle in such a way that she was seated on that saddle. And it was the, her time of month and she was seated on it. And so when they did the search, looking through all of Jacob's property, they didn't ask her to move because it was her time of month and she was able to conceal them and the search turned up nothing. So this is Jacob now complaining to Laban, you know, look, you've searched through all my stuff. There is no reason for you to have objection to me. I've done everything that I was supposed to have done. Everything I have was paid for properly. I've done no harm to you, although you have reduced my um, wages 10 times over the cost of the 20 years. And it sets the stage now for them to make an agreement, and they set up some stones and pillars there, and it's, a, it's called the heap of stones witness, 
And they sat down, they had a meal, and they agreed. Jacob says, I'm not going to come back and attack you. And Laban says, I'm not going to come and harass you. And so they agreed to make their departure from that. So he's now left Laban, and he's ready to go into the land. But if you'll recall earlier, 20 years earlier, Jacob left under a cloud because at that time his brother Esau wanted to kill him. And he desired his death because of, quote, the stolen birthright, which we've talked before that wasn't stolen. But Esau is using that for the reason to be in contention uh, with Jacob and to threaten him. So here he is. He's got a promise from God to go back to the land. He's dealt with Laban, and now how does he get past Esau? Because Esau is going to find out that he's come back. So that's how our portion begins, and it begins in chapter 32 and verse 3, and it says, Then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the the country of Edom. By the way, just so you know geographically where that's at, that's straight south. And the, uh, uh, but on the east side of the Jordan River, and it's in what we call the land of Jordan, southern Jordan. So he sends those messengers because Jacob is going to cross a river at the northern part of, of where we have Syria today, going into Jordan, and he's going to cross that river before he crosses the Jordan coming into the land. And... Uh, And so he knows, look, I might as well get this out in the open. So he sends messengers to advise so it doesn't look like he's sneaking back in. He's being up front and he's hoping, Jacob is hoping to be able to negotiate with uh, Esau and get agreement so that we can live with one another and proceed. And so um, the messengers go and they come back. And here's what the result is. Verse 6, And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and furthermore, he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. Now, the 400 men, I can assure you, are not side boys or you know, a delegation, of, a welcoming delegation. Uh, Jacob clearly interprets Esau coming with 400 men as he's bringing a small army to wipe him out. Um, And so he's greatly afraid. And that's what we see here now, this prayer of of, um, and dealing with the fear of facing uh, uh, Esau. Verse 7, Then Jacob was greatly afraid, distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. For he said, if Esau comes to one company and attacks it, the other company will be left, will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who did say to me, return to your country and to your relatives, and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all of the loving kindness and for all of the faithfulness which thou hast shown to thy servant. For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two companies. The rationale behind the two companies is because of this. As he said, if Esau comes and attacks, 
and he attacks one of the companies, the other one has time to escape and vice versa. And so he set it up, he divided uh, the mothers and the children and the flocks and so forth so that he wouldn't lose them all at the same time. That was a defensive tactic that he was employing. Um, actually, there's an actual name for that uh, in military science that's part of what we call soaking off. And it's where you leave a contingent that the enemy engages while the rest escape. And um, that was used in the Civil War quite extensively by General Lee uh, when the North was pursuing them. In any case, here's Jacob. He's thinking strategically, how do I do this? And so forth. Now, he's also going to put together um, an appeasement offering. He's going to offer gifts, and he's going to stage this in such a way so when he greets him, he, he attempts to buy his favor, seek his favor, present it in a very honorable way to lessen the anger of Esau because he thinks Esau is going to be really hot with anger toward him, wanting to uh, take vengeance on him for what had happened 20 years earlier. And uh, so he proceeds to do it. Now, I want you to take note of something. One of the things that we see uh, in the Torah, and this is an excellent example of that, there is, a, there is a saying that we say, Torah teachers say about the Torah, and it goes like this. What, what happens to the fathers will happen to the descendants. And there's a lot of wisdom in that. When we go back and we look at the whole scheme of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, as the Jews have moved to different countries in the course of their captivity, this is what they've noticed. When they first move in to the country and so forth, why the people immediately note that they're Hebrews and they say, well, you're different from us. That's exactly what happened to Abraham. The people of the land said, oh, you're different from us. Then that goes to the stage of Isaac. Uh, as, as the Jewish people prosper, just as Isaac prospered, then the people said, oh, well, yeah, you're prospering, but, you, but you're stealing our stuff and you can't stay here. You've got you to go further away. And the Jews would be rounded up and moved into their own communities and blocked um, from being able to do business because they were so successful at what they were doing. And then finally, the story of Jacob that we have here is that then suddenly Jacob is being threatened and he has to leave. So the Jewish people, after the stage of being pushed away, you can't stay here, then they become threatened with their lives. And so that pattern, uh, what happens to the fathers will happen to the descendants. We see it in that manner. But there's a very powerful picture here that takes place in the dividing of the two companies. The history of Israel is that after King Solomon, there was a division that took place within the ranks of Israel. <clears throat> the northern kingdom, uh, led by the tribe of Ephraim, broke away from the rest of the house of Judah and the house of David and the southern kingdom. And so in the Bible, in the books of Chronicles and Kings, we see the history of how the, the northern tribes went this way, the southern tribes stayed down in Jerusalem, and we have the two houses of Israel. We have what's called the house of Israel, which is the northern kingdom, the house of Judah, which is the southern kingdom. The land to the south used to be called Judea. 
the land to the north was called Samaria, and, um, and that's where Israel was dwelling. The captivity, when it came, it was the house of Israel that was taken in Assyrian captivity, and then in the southern kingdom, it was the Romans who came. Well, first of all, the Babylonians came and took them captive, brought them back, and then the Romans dispersed them to the world from that. And so we have this history of the two houses. Now, why did God, why did God allow Israel to be split uh, to begin with? Why didn't, why didn't he keep it together? Well, I would submit to you that it's probably along the same thinking of what Jacob is talking about here. Jacob knew he was going to have to face enemies, and he decided to split it into two companies so to, to help defend it. And so God knew that all of Israel was eventually going to go into captivity with their enemies, but he broke it up and split it up to where they went with that enemy and this went with that enemy with the idea in mind that they would survive captivity, that they would survive uh, the, the uh, uh, controversy of the other nations and still yet fulfill the word of them going into captivity. And so, as you know, you know, in the Holocaust, everyone is trying to wipe the Jews out. Well, there was no effort to wipe out the house of Israel. They, they were concealed. They didn't know where they were at. They didn't, they didn't recognize them. Um, and that was one of the ways that God was preserving Israel uh, in that time, the whole house of Israel at that time. Now, here in the final restoration of these days, the prophets are very specific about in the coming of the Messiah that he's going to bring both houses back and join them together. That's Ezekiel chapter 37. The dry bones prophecy is all about raising up Israel, the remnant of Israel, from all the nations and bringing them back to be one house of Israel before the Lord. So in this Torah portion, we actually see a foreshadowing of all of that. And what's really fascinating is very shortly we're going to find God renames Jacob to the name Israel. And so it's like a global picture of Israel. And we see later on in history what happened to the fathers happens to the descendants you know, in this pattern. So I wanted you to take note of that before we went any further. So now Jacob um, does this division, and he puts together a gift for, for Esau, his brother. In verse 13 it says, So he spent the night there, then he selected from what he had with him to present to his brother Esau 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, and 20 rams, uh, 30 milking camels and their coals, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. Now you'll notice there's more females than there are males because a herdsman doesn't need that many uh, males to be able to reproduce within his flock and he uses the males primarily to consume and eat or do other tasks with it. And he delivered them into the hands of his servants, every drove by itself, and thus said to his servants, Pass on before me and put a space between the droves. And he commanded the one in front, saying, When my brother Esau meets you and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong and where, where are you going? And to whom do these animals in front of you belong? Then you shall say, These belong to your servant Jacob, 
It is a present sent to my lord Esau, and behold, he is also behind us. Now, here's essentially what he did. He's going to have the two companies, and he's lining them up to where it's going to be, the gift is going to be certain droves of animals, and he's going to put separation between them. You know, so the goats come first, and then the donkeys, then, and so forth. And then it comes down to his children and his wives and mothers. It'll be, the, it'll be um, uh, Leah and her handmaid and her children will come first. And then after that, it's Rachel and her children will come afterwards. And then finally, Jacob. And each one is to approach Esau sequentially, referring to Esau as you know, his lord and Jacob's being his servant. In other words, he's the younger son. So he's trying to render honor to him to make him feel good. And it's the idea is to appease him. And so it's set up uh, so that the first one when he shows up, he says, oh, these are for Esau. This is a gift from Jacob uh, and so forth. And he says, okay. He says, well, where's Jacob? Well, he's right behind me. Well, he's not actually right behind him. There's another group, and if he were to see the first group, and then he tells everybody, charge, let's attack, we'll go hit him, well, what's he going to attack? It's another gift. And then he says, well, it's right behind me, and he goes and it, it tries to attack, and eventually there's enough of these where all of a sudden Esau stops issuing the command to attack. He just says, okay, which is this group? Uh, who's this? Uh, who's this? And it comes all the way to Jacob. And at that point, effectively what Jacob has done is gotten Esau and his 400 men to going, well, we're not attacking anything. Uh, you know, all this stuff is coming and, I, and so forth. And Esau is welcome to have this because normally when you take a group of men, like 400 men, part of the payment of going into battle is they get spoils in the battle. Jacob has provided enough gift that his 400 men walk away with spoils. That's the reason why there's this large number of animals and so forth. There's enough to provide Esau to provide spoil to his men for having gone out ready to fight with him and fight for him. So Jacob has thought this thing through on several different levels on how to make this work. And so we come to the point where it's finally that's Jacob that is left. All the others are crossed over. They're getting ready to go do the deal. And something strange happens to Jacob. He meets a man. Actually, I think the man came to him. And he gets in a wrestling match. And he's, during the nighttime, when the others are crossing over and lining up, he's in a wrestling match with this man. And the man won't let him go. He keeps holding on to him. And, he, and Jacob knows he needs to go and resolve with Esau, and I've got to catch up with the others and, and, and so forth, and, and my whole family's in front of me, and I'm not there, and, and, and this man won't let him go. And, um, and so he's wrestling with him. And uh, let, me, um, let me read to you from um, verse 24 in chapter 32. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak, and when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated when he wrestled with him. Now, um, 
if you, by the way, if you dislocate your hip, you know, it's very hard to wrestle. And he basically subdued Jacob at that point. Um, then he said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. And at this point, the, the man is trying to get loose. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Now, this puts a whole different kind of dynamic on this thing. Because I think Jacob is thinking that this is a heavenly person. Either this is an angel or this is God himself. And so he wrestles and he, and he says he won't let him go until he gets a blessing. And he said, and so he speaks to him, verse 27. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Um, and that's really the whole theme that we see about Jacob. Jacob has a conflict with his brother and trying to do that which God has said. He has a conflict with Laban. He's trying to do what is right before his wives and his children. Now he's back having another conflict, and he's going to have a series of other conflicts throughout his life. By the way, let me tell you, if you get a time machine and you can do a switcheroo and you want to go back and live the life of one of the others and then, then trade lives with you, don't do it with Jacob. Jacob had a horrible very controversial life. I wouldn't wish that on anyone, all of the things he had to go through. But he did it, and as God says, he prevailed. Now, here's the interesting part. The number two keeps showing up around the life of Jacob. Two brothers. Um, you'll notice the gifting here. It's two, twenty, two hundred. It, the number two keeps showing up, and when God says that you have prevailed between God and men, God, man, two, um, and you have prevailed in both of the situations, he said, you got into conflict with multiple people, but, but you came out okay. And one of the great biblical themes of the number two is the balance between God and man. Uh, even Paul will uh, make this kind of a statement in Acts where he says, and herein do I exercise myself continually to have a conscience void of offense before God and before men. And one of the things that we do in spiritually walking out our lives is we don't want to offend God and we don't want to offend men. We don't want to have a conflict with God and we don't want to have a conflict with men. And so many times the spiritual man, when he gets in a conflict with men, he will look to his relationship of God and try to use it to balance out the conflict that he has with men. And a lot of times the conflict can be resolved by him simply exercising spiritual humility. You know, get down off of his ruffled feathers, get down off of his ego, and just let's solve it. Let's just bring it to a conclusion. And a godly man does that. A godly man like Jacob prevails because he keeps things balanced uh, correctly uh, for it. And we will find a host of instances throughout the Bible where that theme really carries through. We get it first here with Jacob and how he deals with his life. Um, he goes on and... Uh, he, he um, gets to the point where he asks for this blessing. He's been told that he's going to change his name. 
Then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. And he said, why is it you ask my name? And he blessed him there. And Jacob named the place Peniel. For he said, I've seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now at this point, this is the argument that says that wasn't an angel. That was God. And the person of God who comes in the form of a person, a man, is the Messiah. Here the Messiah came, wrestled with Jacob. And Peniel is not only the name of the place where he crossed the river, and it means the face of God, but by the way, if you study more about angelic angels, you will find out there is an actual angel called Peniel, and in the, th the arrangement of the throne of God, the archangels around God, the seraphim above, the cherubim below him, it is thrown forward and down is the position of Peniel. He is there so that when somebody comes close to God, he's blocked from seeing God's actual face because if you saw God's actual face, the scripture says you'd die. So Peniel is there is the defense uh, that protects you from looking directly on the face of God. And he feels that he has been that close to God and that one who came in the form of a man is the one who's protected him in the presence of God and he's the one that he had to interact with. So he called the place Peniel. And that's where that name carries out and has specific emphasis for what we call angelic majesties. Now, he gets done with that, and so he crosses over, and he's going to now go and finally meet um, Esau. Esau has, well, let me, let me also give you this one out of the tradition. The scripture says this very clearly. Um, verse 32, Therefore, to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is in the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of the hip. And what that means is to this day, a kosher butcher will go in into the hip part of the animal, the, the back legs. He will go in and he will um, excise, he will cut out the sciatic nerve that goes down the tissue uh, of that, and that's rendering that particular meat as kosher. It's part of the definition, and it comes from this verse. So when you go and you say, well, what's a kosher butcher do? Well, besides taking clean animals and butchering them properly, he specifically does that one task. He removes that sciatic nerve that runs down through the back legs um, from the spine, and that way it's removed so that the sons of Israel don't eat that in remembrance of Jacob wrestling with the Lord here. I wanted to mention that. That's a very interesting tradition, and that's where the Scripture um, lays it out and, um, and offers that as a tradition for us. All right, chapter 33. Then Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids, and he put the maids and their children in front, and Leah and his children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. 
But he himself, he, he fell on the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Now, what a scene this was. I mean, the children are coming forth. You know, he sees them coming. But he can also see Esau, who's taking note of Esau, and he's down on the ground bowing to him. And before they meet, Jacob comes and bows seven times, uh, which is a presentation of the most humble way he can approach Esau. And so Esau, upon seeing this, apparently is emotionally overcome by the graciousness and the humility being shown that he runs to him personally and embraces him. And it's this scene, that, you know, like the Hollywood scene, here comes Esau running and here comes Jacob bowing and so forth to him, and they embrace. And it says that, uh, the, verse 4, when they embrace, and they fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Now, that sounds like a very loving scene. However, there is a very, very ominous prophecy here. It seems that the word kissed, um, which is there, let me pronounce the word for you as best I can, vayashekhu, that's the word for kissed. And there are some six letters in that Hebrew word. And the scribes, above every letter, put a jot. In other words, when you open the scroll up and you're looking at the actual Hebrew text of the Torah, you can see that six-letter word, and there's a dot above every letter. This is um, the one of four instances in all of the Torah where we see the jots that take place. As we go through the Torah teaching, I'll point the others out to you uh, as well. Um, this is one of the first. And here's what Torah teachers teach from that. They say that these jots represent the points of teeth of Esau, and that what Esau really wants to do in his heart, he wants to bite Jacob's neck. He wants to wound him by biting his neck. But instead, he kisses him and didn't bite him. Um, later on, here again, what happens to the fathers will happen to the descendants. It's the descendants of Esau which will become the arch enemies of the descendants of Jacob. And there will be much consternation that will follow. And it's because the descendants of Esau are attempting to kill Jacob over the birthright thing and the continuation of this conflict. And it goes to multiple generations. Even, I would suggest, even to this generation. Um, in modern Israel today, we believe that the great conflict between the Palestinians and the Jews is based on the descendants of Esau and Jacob. And there are other instances where we'll see the descendants of Esau will turn out to be various problems for Israel throughout the years. Now, that really makes this scripture stand out um, in a very special way for us in understanding how the Torah, you know, speaks to the future. It's not just a historical record. It's actually setting the stage to understand things, to understand the Messiah, to understand the work of the Messiah, to understand, you know, 
uh, what's going to happen at the end of the ages. And one of the things that I, we've already seen is that we know the Messiah will come as the promised Lamb of God of Abraham. And oh, by the way, he will be taken to the very place to be crucified that Isaac was taken to. Now, whereas Isaac didn't die, the Messiah will die. We see that the actual sacrifice with Abraham was a ram whose head was caught in thorns. And Yeshua comes to make sacrifice for us. And he has a crown of thorns. All of these pieces fit together in, in actuality. The Torah is foreshadowing things. Now, how wise would a person be, had we been back in the days of these events, could we have perceived, well, that's really a, a prophetic uh, implication. That's something that is yet future. We're having something happen here, but there's something prophetic that's being spoken of in the future. A spiritual person, a spiritually wise person, has the ability to go into the Scripture and see that level of the Torah. In fact, one of the things that we say in the teaching of the Torah, there are four levels to the Torah in understanding it and so forth. The Peshat, the plain sense of the text. Uh, what is, what's just, just what does the text say? Let's accurately represent what it says. The Midrash level or the Drash level. That's where we find principles and truths that specifically are applicable, like laws that are applicable for all things. And we have a lot of spiritual laws that come out of the Torah that are still relevant with us today. Learning those spiritual laws comes from the study of the Scripture. Then we have the Remez level, which is the hint. And those are the metaphors that are speaking to the future things, the future things of Israel, future things of the Messiah, and those kinds of things. And then finally, we have the sowed level, which is the esoteric or the mysterious level. And that speaks to really intriguing things. And let me tell you what those specifically do. Those are the ones that blow your socks off. Those are the ones that make a wise man amazed as to the intellect and, and to what went into uh, this here. By the way, the jots that I'm mentioning to you, that's considered the sowed level of the Scripture. And it's, in other words, there's a teaching, there's an understanding that comes from those things that adds to what you read from the text. Now, most Bible scholars, when they interpret the Bible, they look at the, what we call the literal and the metaphors. In other words, they, they look at one symbolizes something else, but then literally this is what it said. They only look at two levels. If you study Torah, you're going to learn four levels. And th that's how things tie together. A lot of people don't know this, but many of the jots and tittles that are in the Scripture are actual taught lessons by the Messiah and by the apostles in the New Testament uh, books. And once you go back and see the original, it really enriches you know, the things that you have there, it makes it more full. And if you remember, the Messiah said that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Now, some people are going to tell you, well, that means do away with them. They're all done. 
No, that's not what the Hebrew word fulfill means. The Hebrew word fulfill means there, I'm going to fill it up full of greater meaning for you. It's, good. it's a little bit like, well, you got the plant, but now I'm going to cause all the blossoms to come for you, and you're going to have a whole bouquet. And that's what the Yeshua was saying. He says, yeah, the plant's going to grow to fullness, and then I'm going to pop the bouquet you know, on what is happening. And that's what we find with the Messiah is he is the bouquet, if you will, of all the stuff the Torah was teaching uh, about the Messiah and the redemption that would be coming and remind you that the bulk of the Torah is really, the first five books, it's really a story of this one generation that's down in Egypt that gets, goes through the Passover, comes out of Egypt, is saved out of Egypt, and is on a journey to the promised land. We're in the book of Genesis. This is just setting the stage to say, where in the world did we come from, and how in the world did we get stuck in Egypt to begin with? So, and then, you know, there, Paul himself said, hey, those lessons in the wilderness, that's going to fall on the last generation at the end of the ages. That there, He's saying that there's a prophetic element to the story of the Exodus that's going to apply to the last generation. And our study of Torah is to learn these particular things so that we're able to perceive the wisdom that the Scripture has given to us. Whenever I hear um, a churchman um, suggest that, well, this is all done away with, it's just history, I'm listening to a man who is totally spiritually ignorant. I mean, he may think he knows God, and he probably does know the Messiah, but does he understand what God's really doing here? Does he understand the wisdom that is in the Scripture, why this Scripture was referred to by King David as a path unto his feet and sweeter than a honeycomb and a delight to the soul? I mean, is he even beginning to grasp the incredible wisdom that God has given us in this. And men who dismiss it, as uh, my definition of a fool, uh, completely foolish. It's a little bit like, uh, let me give you one last analogy here. It's like a guy who has memorized his multiplication tables and suddenly he thinks he's real smart about math. And he has no concept of algebra or geometry or trigonometry or calculus or any of that. I mean, the multiplication tables can get you through life to a certain extent, but they're not going to cover all the other stuff that's really going on in the world. And this is an example here of where there is great depths and delights to the soul that we learn out of these portions. All right, so Jacob now completes this. And he um, has um, been resolved with, with Esau. They make an agreement for Esau to return to his home and that Jacob will enter the land and he and the two of them won't be in conflict with each other, at least between Esau and Jacob. They make this agreement. And he says to, let me, let me read to you in uh, verse 8, and he said, what do you mean by this company which I have met? And he said, I, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have plenty, my brother. Let what you have be your own. And Jacob said, no, please, if now I have found favor in your sight, 
Then take my present from my hand, for I see your face as one sees the face of God, and you have received me favorably. Please take my gift, which has been brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have plenty, thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us take our journey and go, and I will go before you. And again, uh, Jacob says, no, I don't need you to escort me. I'm okay. And he said, uh, verse 13, my Lord knows that the children are frail. The flocks and herds which are nursing are in care to me. And if they are driven hard one day, all the flocks will die. Please let my Lord pass on before his servant, and I will proceed at my leisure according to the pace that the cattle who are before me and according to the pace of the children until I come to the land of Seir. In other words, Esau, why don't you go back to the land of Seir? It's going to take me a while, but let me go ahead and proceed on in on the journey and let me do it on my own speed. And at this point, um, Esau agrees to that. Now, I want you to take note of something very interesting. Verse 13. This is Jacob now entering into the promised land. It says, Jacob journeyed to Sukkot and built for himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the place is named Sukkot. Sukkot is the name of the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, the first camping place that the children of Israel, when they left Egypt, the first place they camped was called Sukkot. And the reason why it's called Sukkot is because that's where they set up tents and booths and huts to live in. And Jacob enters the land. He's not journeying anymore. And so for the first time, he builds temporary shelters because he's in the land now. And he calls the place Sukkot. And there's a pattern here. Every time we see someone who's on a journey to the promised land, the first place they go to is called Sukkot. Let me tell you, you remember I told you about having the wisdom to see things in the past and project how they will apply to us in the future? This is one of those that stands out famously for it. Uh, the last feast of the seven appointed times of the Lord is called Sukkot. It's called the Feast of Tabernacles. We observe it in the fall. And we are told that we're to keep that feast, we're to remember that, to remember how the children of Israel dwelt in booths and huts on the journey to the Promised Land. Now, that's great to remember the past. I mean, that's a simple lesson to do it. But why would he want every generation, including the last generation, to do that? Why, in the final message of Jacob, reminding us of the appointed times, why does he specifically refer to, in a singular way, the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot, and, and he admonishes as the last lesson of the Torah, make sure you keep the Feast of Sukkot. It's because, my friends, when the Great Tribulation comes, and the Greater Exodus comes, and when we flee the cities, uh, to, to escape, survive, and endure and the coming of the Lord in the three-and-a-half-year Great Tribulation. Guess where the first place is that we're going to camp and go to? It's going to be called Sukkot. And oh, by the way, 
the Sukkots that we keep today, we generally don't keep them in the city or at our house. We get out of our houses and we go to a campground. We go to a, another remote location and we set up our sukkah and we, our temporary dwelling place and we invite the brethren and we all come and we observe Sukkot. And messianics in this generation, that's what they do. So what's that mean to us? Well, that means that when um, the time comes for the Great Tribulation and the time comes to escape, and we're probably going to start our exodus, the greater exodus, on a Passover. By the way, that's when exodus is began, is as a result of Passover. We're going to eat the Passover, and we're going to escape. And then in the course, where's the first camping place we're going to go to? Where we kept Sukkot last. Remember, where we set up a camp, we set up our temporary places, where we formed the organization of the camp, the tents of the righteous, we will go to Sukkot. Here's another example of Jacob. This is the earlier example than even the children of Israel. He, his trip to the promised land, the first place he camps in the promised land is called Sukkot. And that is a profound prophetic impl uh, implication, not only for the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, but for the final generation at the greater exodus uh, from that. All right. So from there, uh, it said, um, verse 18, Now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is the land of Canaan. And when he had come from Param Aran and escaped before the city, he bought the piece of land which he pitched his tent from the head of the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, uh, for a hundred pieces of silver. And then he erected there an altar and called it um, um, Elohe Israel. Um, now, there's going to be a very interesting story that's going to take place here. This son of this uh, leader of Shechem, uh, he is going to see Dinah, who's the, the lone daughter uh, of Jacob, and it was the daughter through Leah, and she, she's, she's a daughter there, and, and the sister to all the other brothers. And she's going to be visiting some of her girlfriends from Shechem. And this young man from Shechem, who's the prince, he's going to see her. And he's forcefully going to rape her. But then he goes to his father and he says, oh, I love her. I want her for my wife. Please negotiate for uh, her to be my wife. And so Hamor is coming down to talk with Jacob about the time that the brothers are finding out that their sister had been raped. Now, they're upset about that, you know, they, they, but Hamar wants to come and negotiate uh, and says, what, Jacob, what are you going to charge me? I'll, I'll pay whatever you need. Uh, my son would like to have um, her as his wife. And oh, by the way, wouldn't it be a good thing of our peoples and your peoples if we offered our daughters to your sons and your daughters to uh, our sons and, and, and we could build the bonds of, of a community here in cooperation amongst each other. The, um, that's usually in the ancients, that's usually how they did it. A lot of treaties between various primitive nations were actually sealed by a daughter being provided to the king from the people, and the idea is that she's part of his family now, and so he's not going to harm members of his family, the other people that provided the daughter, and vice versa. And, and this, this is the kind of stuff that went on 
all the way through medieval times, they would do this kind of exchange. The same thing described here. However, the brothers are still very upset about all of this, even though Jacob is agreeing to offer Dinah as a daughter. And the conditions that are requested for this deal to come off is rather than gold or silver or, or land or whatever, that they say, well, it's, uh, it's not proper for our sister and daughter to marry your son as long as he's uncircumcised. See, our, our way is under the covenant of Abraham. We have the right of circumcision. You, you guys have to be circumcised uh, for this to happen. Well, no, they really don't. Uh, however, um, because they're not signing up for the Abrahamic covenant, but the sons are insisting on it. Well, Hamor says, okay, he agrees to this. So they do this ritual, and all of the men of Shechem get circumcised. Well, as I've shared with you before, when a man does get circumcised, there's a healing recovery period during that time, and usually a man is extremely weak at the moment that he's healing in, in that area. And so all the men of Shechem are weak. So what does, it says, Simeon and Levi do? They go and slaughter the men of Shechem one night. And um, they're, they're completely slaughtered. And this is not what Jacob was trying to do. And Jacob is extremely fearful that the other people is going to hear that they're violent people and kill people, and then they're going to send their armies and kill him and his family. He's very concerned about all of that. But it's Simeon and Levi decided to assert themselves over the um, wishes of their father, and they decided to use the tactic of violence uh, to do so. Now, here's an incredible story that comes from this, the projection of the future. What happens to the fathers will happen to the descendants. Simeon, when he gets into the land, is not going to be given a specific plot of land. His is going to be splotchy and basically intermingled with Judah and others because he's a very violent people. Levi is going to be made into the priesthood because we need him in the temple slaughtering animals instead of out in the world slaughtering men. And so let me clue you in on something very interesting in the world. The atomic bomb, largest weapon to ever kill men. It was headed by the project by a name of Oppenheimer. He's Jewish. But the guy that actually designed the mechanism, the detonator, that detonated the atomic bomb, was a guy named Cohen, which means Levite Jew, Levite priest. Cohen means priest, and he's of the tribe of Levi. You see, when Levi is out of the temple, and he's out here living with the rest of us, his descendants are masters of warfare, and they figure out ways to kill, be kill people better than anybody's ever figured it out. Let me illustrate my point further. The guy that built the hydrogen bomb, who was he? Oh, it was another guy, another guy called Cohen, a Levite Jew, who designed the neutron bomb. 
Amazingly enough, it's another guy named Kohen, a Levite Jew. If you want to see the evidence of the Levite priests violent outside of the temple, um, just look at the atomic age that we have today. They are the ones responsible for the technology for it. We need to keep the Levites in the temple. We need to use their skills to slaughter lambs and goats, not people. And I think that's part of the reason why God will select Levi to do that job. And Jacob, when he gives his final blessings, he will refer to Simeon and Levi because of this event and says, May I not follow their ways, which are the ways of violence. Because they asserted themselves and took the violent choice uh, to do that, uh, to deal with Shechem in that way, and basically murdered them. Um, and Dinah was brought back. Now, here's going to be an interesting thing, and when we get to the book of Exodus, I'm going to point this out to you. Because Dinah has lost her husband, um, she doesn't have anyone to bear children for her and, and offspring from her because there wasn't sufficient time with uh, the fellow from Shechem. That means that those that were responsible for the death of her husband, they have to father a child with her. And this is, is a hidden item that is in the Torah. When we get there, I will show it to you. Um, and it has to do with there will be a daughter of Leah who will have an offspring that will be very important in the story of the lineage of Moses. And the daughter of, Le uh, of Leah is Dinah. And how did she get a child? Well, it turns out her child is referred to as a Levite. And it's Levi who then provided an offspring for Dinah. And because of this event, Levi was responsible for killing her husband. Therefore, he had to go and help her to conceive to have children. These are the ancient ways that was done. It's a very intriguing part of the story. A lot of people don't know about it. Um, and we'll point that out in more detail when we get into Exodus and hear about uh, Moses and so forth. All right, there's still more that's in this portion I'm not getting to. Uh, again, how um, they, uh, Jacob moves with his family. And finally, there's in chapter 36 and, and, and so forth, um, we are going to hear about the lineage of Esau. I won't go into the detail of it with the exception to say that if you go back down through, look to those generations of Esau, you're going to hear those names come up in the future of those contending with Israel uh, as they um, come into the land. So Shabbat Shalom to everyone. Enjoy your Sabbath, and we look forward to next Sabbath when we'll continue our Torah teaching. Amen.